It's Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett with you on Family Day weekend on a Saturday morning. Great old song there from Roger Miller and King of the Road setting up a chat with our next guests who are the Fit RV Couple. It's a pleasure to welcome Steph and Jim Adonaro to CKNW. They're in town, actually in Abbotsford this weekend at the RV show out there at Tradex. Steph and Jim, good morning. Hey, good morning. How's it going? Uh, Very well, thank you. Now, before we get too far into the conversation, let me just take a second and uh, say happy anniversary belatedly to you, too. It it was Thursday, Valentine's Day. Jim, you hopeless romantic. You proposed and got married on Valentine's Day. Uh, I don't know that it was uh, being a romantic so much as it was uh, wanting to make sure I didn't forget winter anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's more likely. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, either way, he never forgets uh, the wedding anniversary now, does he, Steph? This is true. <laughs> so, uh, welcome to Vancouver. Have you been up in this part of the world before? Because you do the RV show circuit extensively. Yes. Well, we haven't done an RV show in Canada. This is our first Canadian RV show, so we are super excited for that. We have done a few RV trips through Canada and one specifically to the Vancouver area before. So this is our second time in the Vancouver area. Okay. And I've been checking you out on Pinterest and and, uh, your Facebook pages and so on. I'm real curious, and it's just a curiosity question. What sort of RV do you two drive? I'll take that one. We've got a uh, Winnebago Truvado. It's a camper van, so uh, we're a little we're a little different. We roll around in a it's 23 feet long camper van, and uh, we typically roll with four bikes and a cat uh, okay. in a van at, at one time. So yeah, it's uh, it's been great. It allows us to get pretty much anywhere we want to go and see whatever we want to see um, because it's a very very nimble RV. But we do sacrifice space to get that. I'm sure it does. I've seen many pictures of the cat. He's very handsome, hand, feline <laughs> character. Now, uh, talk to, to a little bit about why the fit RV couple, beyond the obvious, it's a sedentary pastime sitting in your vehicle and seeing the world. So when you stop, you don't necessarily just want to take a walk with the cat and eat. You might want to kind of do something to stay in shape. Is that where it all got started? Yeah, so the Fit RV promotes a a more healthy and active RV lifestyle. And on our website, we provide a lot of tips and suggestions for making your RV trips more active and more fun. So that's kind of where the website grew out of. Um, We also have another segment of our website that's about keeping your RV fit as well. James is an engineer, so he gives a lot of tips for upkeeping your RV. So the website is kind of twofold in that way. And which, when you uh, when people come on the website, Jim, and, and poke around, and, and what in terms of subject matter, given the fact that you know as much as you do about the mechanics of it all, is that where most of your inquiries come from, or is it about the fitness stuff? Um, I'd say probably the, the number one question we get is uh, some variant of, of which RV should I buy. Right, right, okay. Um, and we get that because uh, we've done a lot of reviews of different different RVs. We've got over 40 detailed video reviews, and these things run like 30 minutes long when I get them all edited down and produced, of different RVs, typically smaller RVs. That's where we focus. So we've seen a lot of them. We have relationships with most of the manufacturers, mm-hmm. so people want to want to leverage that information to say, well, this is this is me. What kind of RV should I buy? And that's kind of that's kind of bringing it around to one of our seminars today at the RV show. Is uh, is that uh, like our eight-step program to choosing your first RV? That's you know picking the RV that's right for you, 
And that's really the number one thing we get asked about on the website. Jim, a lot of people, uh, when, they, when they're thinking about buying a new car, for example, will do, they'll go rent a couple of cars. They'll rent a car for a weekend and try this model. And the next weekend, they'll go rent a car or maybe take a trip and rent another car, specifically to try them out before making, you know, committing any money to it. Is that an approach that you recommend with respect to RVs, which are at least as expensive as cars and in many cases a lot more so? And that's actually step number two. Um, you've you've uh, renting it, renting an RV. If you've never, if you've never had an RV before, I can tell you. And this this is the same for us as well. You're going to learn an awful lot. Sure, yeah. About your RVing style with your first RV purchase, and so that's one of the objectives that, that we want is for people to go out and learn as much of that as they can before they spend any of their hard earned money on an RV. We want them to go go in as knowledgeable as possible. Right. Yes, absolutely. That's a brilliant way to go about it. That's because I can remember when when our kids were young and uh, we got tired of tents. Uh, so the next step, obviously, was because if you camp in BC, there's there's a bit of rain that happens on an annual basis, <laughs> and, and so you have to sort of take that into a, a little bit of that too. Uh, not as much as the rest of Canada, but uh, yes. So we actually rented over two or three summers in a row. We did, did a different vehicle each time, a different brand, a slightly different length including different components and and as you say every time you take out a new unit boy you sure do learn a lot jim oh yeah oh yeah yeah and that's uh that's like i said that's just one of the steps that we'll go through and i try to talk people through like figuring out what their exact needs are with an rv right and you know that that seminar is coming up i think today i'm doing that one at uh, 1 p.m if you come out to Okay, Steph, I wanted to ask you about, uh, just maybe stick a pin in the myth bubble here for us, if you agree with me. Uh, uh, Most people seem to think that RVing is a pastime for seniors. A, because in many cases, they're the only ones who can afford this pastime. And B, it's, it's just kind of an old people thing. And I'm reading more and more about the new RV buyers, and they're not very old at all. They're looking at a lifetime ahead of them of RVing and getting into it in their 20s and 30s. Yes, well, it's really true. There's, there's the entire culture now that people can work remotely, so more people that are younger and still working are getting involved in the RV lifestyle, and they're working from the road. And it's wonderful to see these younger, more active people out as well. But the retirees are still embracing the RV lifestyle as well. So so it's interesting. You can see people in their 20s out in their RV mm-hmm, yeah. days and, and people well past their retirement. So it really does run the gamut with age. Uh, uh, back to the uh, selection of RV, the unit that's most appropriate for you. You took a break, you two, and uh, buzzed off to Europe. And that would involve, I assume, renting something when you're in that part of the world. So what did you go for? Um, there we had, oh gosh, what was it? It was a BMC. It was a, something along the lines of what you'd call a B plus over here. Um, so a, a smaller thing, you know, built on like a, this one was a, well, here it would be a Ram Promaster chassis, but there it was a Fiat Ducato. Okay. Um, it was about, it was about, uh, I don't know, I'd say about 26 feet long or so, which is very large for an RV over in Europe. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was manual, which, uh, was, was a bit of an adjustment. And, uh, you know, even, even at, at that size, I, the roads in Europe, let's just say they're quite a bit smaller. They sure are. Yeah. America. Yeah. 
Is <laughs> and, it? Uh, there, there were some uh, some nail-biting moments going through the Alps. I'll just bet. Is, is RVing uh, as big a pastime uh, and as popular with Europeans as it is with us North Americans? You know, it's interesting. It's actually a younger crowd RVing over there. It's okay. not so much the retirees. It's it's um, working couples, and they're going out on their weekends. And so it's a lot of shorter trips, and they're RVing with their families, with children. So that was interesting to see the difference. And, Steph, I noticed that you had a, a posting on, I, I can't remember which platform it was on, d- discussing the difference between Canadian and American RV shows, because up here yes. we include some used vehicles, and that's just not on at, at U.S. Yeah. shows. Well, that was very interesting to see and quite a surprise. Another interesting difference we saw is the private sales that happen at a Canadian RV show. And we think that's actually brilliant where private owners can come in and sell their RVs as well, not just dealers bringing in RVs. So uh, I'd love to see something like that happen in the U.S. at shows. So now, Jim, you were talking about a seminar that you're going to do, and a very important one for the, especially for the neophyte, the beginners, to take in. That's the, the whole business of prioritizing what your needs are and how to go about even selecting the right type of RV, even just to rent and have some fun for a weekend. You got to start somewhere. What time is that seminar today, Jim? Today, that one is at one p.m. Okay, and will you do it again tomorrow as well? That's right. Sunday, I'll be doing it at noon. Okay, good. And it all happens, at, of course, at Tradex at, uh, in Abbotsford. Uh, I'm, I'm fresh out of time. I thank you both for yours. Any parting thoughts, Steph, uh, for Canadians on a snowy Saturday morning, uh, dreaming perhaps of uh, warmer, drier places to go and, and how to get there? Well, I think one warmer, drier place would be coming right to the RV show today. So they should come on out to the Tradex Center, check out the RV show, and we'll be there all day. So we're looking forward to seeing y'all. All right. Well, thanks very much. Nice of you to take us the time to get up. I suppose you've already been for a run or something really absurd <laughs> like that, too, haven't you? Right. Uh, well, we'll get right on that. After <laughs> so not quite as fit fanatic as as, right. uh, as I was led to believe. And good for you both, That's Steph and right. Jim. We're real people. Exactly. Thanks so much for getting up early to do this with us. A pleasure to meet you from this distance and have fun in Abbotsford this weekend. Thank you so much. Bye now. And Mike Smith joining us from Victoria with a few moments to take a look at the week that was. And oh, my gosh, another super busy one. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning, Sterling. Nice to talk to you again. Good to have you back with us. And I want to talk about money to start things off. And I'll let you lead on this one, whether we want to talk about BC Hydro money or the talk, talk, talking about money laundering that you referenced a couple (laughs) of days ago. Okay, well, on the money laundering one... This is one that I think that the government talks about all the time. I mean, Attorney General David Eby uh, talks about this scourge of money laundering constantly, and I think there's a political benefit, certainly, to the NDP to be doing that. I mean, they're just absolutely piling on the Liberals for the way the casinos were managed and the impact of money laundering on the real estate market and all the rest of it. So I certainly think it's... Uh, an important issue in our province for sure. Right. But there is a lot of demand right now for a public inquiry into it. Like, if it's so bad, let's get to the bottom of it with the public inquiry. The government does not seem to want to go there. Now, they would require cooperation from the feds if they're going to do a public inquiry, because you're not going to get to the bottom of this thing unless you 
bring in the RCMP and FinTrack, which is the federal agency responsible for tracking and preventing money laundering. Sure. You got to bring these people and call them on the carpet and grill them under oath. And I don't think Justin Trudeau is in any mood to do something like that. He's got enough on his plate in an election year. So there are some barriers to a, a public inquiry here in B.C., but the government, I think, could be making a better effort to, to get one going. Here's the thing, though. they If they just keep talking about it without calling a public inquiry, they, they achieve one of their political goals, which is to trash the liberals. Sure, just, of course. Just make sure that the liberals are, take the blame for this thing, which I think is one of the primary motivations here. Right, but of course, and you're quite right to point out that EB has been riding this horse for at least a year yeah. uh, and, and making a lot of uh, making a lot of noise, but also now the noise level is at least as loud, if not already louder, Mike, uh, than the government with respect to this inquiry. More and more yep. people and groups province-wide are going, okay, if it's as bad as you say it is, and we believe you, let's get to the bottom of it. And you're quite right, because a lot of the money, in fact, probably well over 90% of this money is coming in from offshore. Naturally, the feds have to be involved because British Columbia doesn't deal with international governments. Canada does. And you're right, in an election year for the federal government, they don't necessarily want to be, well, shown to be lacking in this department. Yeah, that's right. But the pressure is building, like you point out. I mean, if you take a look at a lot of municipal politicians, municipal councils across B.C. are cluing in on this and saying, look, we want something done about it. Uh, Take a look at the public opinion polls that shows overwhelming support for a public inquiry on this in B.C. The BCGU, which is the largest public sector union in the province, has got an incredible public campaign going to try and pressure the government into calling this. So I think there's a big public appetite and demand for it. Now, on the other side of it, some people say, well, you know, I've heard John Horgan, for example, say, oh, it's so expensive. Well, yeah, it can be expensive, but it can also get results. If you take a look at the Charbonneau Commission in Quebec, now that cost... That was into corruption, wasn't it? Yeah, it looked into corruption in the construction industry um, with government contracts, and that public inquiry cost $35 million dollars which is a lot of money, sure. but it got results. They put the mayor of Laval into jail. They charged a whole bunch of people. Uh, they convicted people. And they and guess what? They got a lot of money back. They actually recovered a lot of taxpayers' money that had been spent on scandalous contracts. They say, that the, the backers of that commission, say they recovered $95 million. So they say they actually made money on the thing. Right, they got sure. money back. So, and also they had a fantastic commissioner there, a woman named France, France Charbonneau. She was a tough-as-nails public prosecutor in Quebec who was responsible for going after the Hells Angels. You remember there's a guy in Quebec, leader of the Hells Angels, his name was Mom Bouchard. That's right, yes. She put him behind bars. So I think that showed in Quebec, if you get a public inquiry that's structured properly, you put a really great commissioner at the top of it, it can get results. So I personally like the idea. I think we should do it here in B.C. All right. Interesting stuff. Well, stay with money because, well, there's money problems just don't stop. And uh, we've got ICBC, which we'll get to in a minute. But hydro, a big deal this week as the government decided to write down over a billion bucks uh, on B.C. Hydro's books to reduce their deficit and, and, and their debts. Give us the behind the scenes on that one, Mike. Well, it was kind of expertly played this week, I thought, by Michelle Mongal, the 
energy minister because the day before that she announced this big billion-dollar bailout of BC Hydro, she released this report that said that BC Hydro was paying too much for a lot of these small private power projects that had been approved once again by the Liberal government previously. Mm. So this is the standard operating procedure here. We got bad news. We're in trouble. Blame the Liberals. So you bring out this report that said these I, these so-called IPPs, independent power projects, uh, were we we're paying too much for them. We didn't need the power anyway. It's costing us $16 billion. The average residential ratepayer and their hydro bill is paying $200 a year to pay for these uh, private power projects that we didn't need, according to this report. So you soften the public up for the blow. You put that report out first, mm-hmm. blame the liberals, and then... And the next day you say, oh, by the way, we got to bail out hydro for a billion dollars, but it's not our fault, it's the Liberals' fault. So a lot of politics on this thing. The fight over those private power projects, that's been going on for 10 years. Sure has. And th- there's two sides to it, because, yeah, these those projects were expensive, but they were approved 10 years ago when hydro rates were, electricity rates were a lot higher on the spot market. They are small hydro projects that are expensive to produce, it's renewable power, and and these projects can be very expensive. Yeah, we could generate a lot of cheap power if you want to build a a coal-burning electricity plant and pump a a bunch of smog and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and that would save us a lot of money. But if you want to build renewable energy projects to combat climate change and that kind of thing, you got to spend some money. So that's the other side of it, that these projects were expensive, but they... Um, they produce a lot of clean power, uh, benefited a lot of First Nations that partnered in them, right. created, a, created a lot of jobs, created some uh, a lot of local tax revenue for municipalities. So there's two sides to the coin. But I thought, the <laughs> once again, the NDP are shown to be very clever politically the way they roll these things out. Well, we'll get to ICBC and more bad money news in a moment, but let's do a good news story for a few seconds anyway, Mike. And that, of course, is the St. Paul's Hospital announcement just a day or two ago by the new government. And uh, we've got the green light and thumbs up and off we go. Yeah, St. Paul's Hospital and Jimmy Patterson there putting some money in, and good for him. You know, like Jimmy Patterson is uh, is a rich guy. He's got a lot of money, and it's nice to see him um, putting some of that money into St. Paul's Hospital. So that's so that's great. And this has been a long overdue uh, investment that that hospital has been needed an upgrade for a long time. Sure, and. Um, Certainly, I think it's a, it's a positive announcement and a popular one for sure. Well, and of course, the price tag is uh, a, a $1.9 billion. Uh, the yeah. government coming up with a, with a billion of that. And a lot of it is going to come from the sale of the land where St. Paul's Hospital is right now. That Barard and Georgia uh, area uh, is, is uh, super, super expensive. And God, how many hundreds of millions of dollars might they recoup simply from selling the land, Mike? Yeah, sure. I mean, that land is super, is super valuable. So I, I think there was a, a decision made there that this was the best possible uh, move to make. And uh, long overdue, that hospital is, is badly needed. And I think there's a lot of people who are very happy. When you went that news conference where they announced this, you had a lot of doctors and nurses and staff out there that just all, they're all smiles, all looking pretty happy. So the people who work in that in that old hospital, we're are pretty happy with the idea of getting a new one. That's right. In False yeah. Creek Flats, that's going to be yeah. 
the location. All right, well, we have to get to it, so let's hunker down and talk ICBC for a few minutes, Mike, because, well, they moved the goalposts last week with respect to personal uh, injury claims. The trial lawyers of British Columbia are right out of their minds upset with that, Uh, and they say it's all about trying to uh, put out the dumpster fire, to use a David Eby expression, and reduce the debt. Yeah, the famous dumpster fire is still burning. So this dumpster fire has been burning up over two billion bucks over the last two years. So by the time you finish your your show today, Sterling, ICBC will have lost about oh about another half a million. Ouch. Yeah, yeah, they're losing like three million a day at ICBC. They're just absolutely hemorrhaging money. And the government's been talking about ever since they got into power. Remember, this government's been in power for a year and a half now, Mm -hmm. more than that. So they've been talking about it from the very beginning. We've got to put out this dumpster fire. Well, you know, it, the fire is still burning here. Now, one of the things they're doing this year, and kicking in on April 1st, that is the date when they start bringing in these strict new caps on the amount of money exactly. that they will pay out for uh, what a quote-unquote minor injury. So the classic one is a soft tissue injury like whiplash. Yes. The average payout by ICBC for one of these injuries has been $30,000. The government has said the maximum we'll pay out on April 1st is $5,500. Right. Now, the lawyers, as you mentioned, are going ballistic sure. because this is their bread and butter. So they are mad as hell. And one of the reasons why, if you're watching, anytime you're on TV, radio, anywhere, you will see a lot of these ads from, uh, from lawyers saying oh, sure. if you're injured in a car accident, call us first. That's right. And they are pumping up those ads big time. They are spending more than ever to run those ads. And the reason that the ad buy has gone up so much is they're trying to get in under the deadline here with that April 1st deadline bearing down on them. They got to get while they're getting good here. So they're advertising heavily to get as many clients in the door right now when they can because the government's bringing the hammer down on them. Yeah, sure. All right, well, of course, this is a wide open story and it's far from over. Uh, Only got a couple of minutes left and we do need to talk about Mr. Plekis, the Speaker of the House, Mm. uh, Alan Mullen, his... uh, associate and their findings because apparently uh, I mean Bob Plekis has been making some noises and rattling a lot of uh, uh, of cages over there for the past few months but more and more Mike it looks like he's not doing it for the sake of attracting attention he's on to something and big time well you know that this guy's they call him the super speaker and he's got his sidekick there Mr. Mullen and they are determined to get the bad guys now the interesting thing is that they brought out that bombshell report there about the spending at the legislature, and, and Plekis promised that everyone would vomit when they found out what was being their money was being spent on. And I think he was pretty accurate when people started seeing things like wood splitters and, mm-hmm. and designer suits and watches and six hundred dollar suitcases. Yeah, a lot of people were losing their lunch. Now he says that was just the start. That was just the like Mullen said. That was a hand grenade. The big bombs are coming later, and they're indicating that there's more to come here, and we could find out more this week. There's another meeting this Thursday of the all-party committee of the legislature where these guys were Plekis is the chair, and they're indicating now that there's going to be another, potentially another report coming out this week and more to come on this, so, you know... 
Don't put away the barf bag just yet. No, just, <laughs> just yet. There could be more. Well, and it's breakfast time. Like, it's really such a horrible <laughs> yeah, thing. No, I'm sorry. It's probably... <laughs> Probably not the best metaphor. I get you, but you're right. (laughs) Uh, Because now we're hearing about potential overspending at the local riding level by more than one MLA. Well, one of the things he said that caught a lot of attention was he was asked, have any MLAs broken the law? Yeah. And he said, yes. And that has got everybody looking over their shoulder at the legislatures, and what is this about now? Now, one of the the things that's buzzing around that building last week was, does it have something to do with constituency offices? All these MLAs get a lot of money to run local offices in their riding. They got a lot of discretion in how they spend that money. One of the things that Plekis has been saying is that I welcome whistleblowers in my office. Right. So if you got some, you got some inside information you want to tell me, come and talk to me. And he says a lot of people have come to him with stories. Could it be there are some political insiders, maybe some former government staffers, who witnessed some dubious spending by MLAs, have gone to this guy and told him a lot of stories. That might be going on behind the scenes. We'll be looking forward to your reporting on this as the days unfold. It's not going to get dull, that's for sure. Mike, thanks for this. Great to have you back. You bet, Sterling. Thank you. And it's time to head up to the Okanagan and check in with Elton Ash. Mr. Ash is the executive vice president with Remax Western Canada, and they've just got a new survey about uh, resort and recreational properties that we're going to talk about this morning. Elton, good to have you back on the program. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Uh, great, great story for a very appropriate weekend being family weekend absolutely and of course the family day weekend we're finally in bc synced up with the other provinces of canada that do celebrate family day weekend and the reason of course is uh, uh well a lot of families like to, to, to blow town especially head to the ski hills and that sort of thing at this time of year elton and and you've, you've done another survey uh it's a national survey uh talk to us about the findings particularly with respect to those uh those recreational properties and i Put that in quotes because they're becoming more year-round than just the cottage that you only visited in the summertime or that sort of thing. Well, the survey certainly showed to us that Canadians' love affair with the great outdoors is alive and well, and that oftentimes when people think about ski resorts, you know, Whistler, Blackcomb, there, Sun Peaks in the Okanagan, Thompson area, Big White, or, or even out to Banff, that uh, a lot of people think that those are for the uber-wealthy kind of lifestyle, when in actuality, it's your average Canadian family that's uh, buying property there and uh, enjoying the great lifestyle that many of these resorts, and Whistler Blackcomb, of course, led the way when it comes to four-season enjoyment. Exactly. And of course, and, and to, to their credit, Worcester Blackcomb decided many years ago that the only way to really make this thing go was to have a year-round approach. And of course, we've seen it up in Kamloops, too, at Sun Peaks, and more and more resorts that were originally sort of single-purpose have expanded over the years. Now, this, this, uh, this timing, of course, is everything, as realtors would know, but the survey last year found that people were, more and more people in big cities like Toronto, in Vancouver were selling some of those homes. The game plan was kicking in. The kids had gone. Now, do we need this home here, this big home in the city anymore that we raised our family in? Probably not. So let's let's sell the darn thing, downsize our lifestyle, and with the difference, go buy a, a fun place out in the country somewhere. Absolutely. It's all about pursuing your personal passions. And, you know, technology now and 
the internet uh, being available uh, almost everywhere now uh, provides the opportunity for people to, to, as you say, kick back, enjoy the lifestyle out in a recreational property, and we're seeing more and more of that in the ski resorts, and still staying connected. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, enjoying life to its fullest. Okay, now talk to us about the difference between last year, Elton, and this year's survey with respect to these recreational properties, because boomers have, uh, the numbers have changed year to year. Well, we're finding that uh, the uh, leading edge boomers, the, the older group, really drove the property, recreational property market a few years ago. And then that shifted to millennials, who started to understand that it was, uh, you know, they needed to unplug. The 24 by 7, 365 connected lifestyle was starting to weigh on them. And they're mm-hmm. starting to have children themselves now. And so balance, which has always been a big focus for the millennial generation, really came to the fore. And then this last year, we found the trailing edge baby boomers, the younger group, who were the first to recover from the Great Recession financially, started to look at legacy and personal passions and lifestyle and have now really driven the overall recreational property market. And as we get into the ski resort uh, segment, are really driving that as well. And in Whistler Blackcomb, we're seeing more investors who are Canadian out of the lower mainland as opposed to a few years ago was really the offshore American investors that were buying there. Interesting stuff. Now, let's talk about uh, provincial government measures. And you and I have been talking about this on the radio for quite uh, quite a long time, Elton. These new measures introduced by the provincial government, these taxes, speculation taxes, and the, this tax and the other tax, a lot of envy taxes in the package. Nonetheless, is it inhibiting British Columbians from buying or moving into that uh, recreational property that otherwise they wouldn't have thought twice about? Well, interesting, interesting, and I'll I'll certainly still continue to call it the so-called speculation tax. There you go. It is truly a vacancy tax, and amazingly enough, Whistler was exempted from that uh, politics. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but nevertheless, the question is: Is it affecting overall investment? Exactly. Well, it certainly has. Uh, as soon as you introduce artificial artificial uh, measures into a market, people right away become concerned. And and will these measures go further? And and that is really what people start to question and wonder about. And so you you start to affect market in artificial ways that ultimately can have unintended consequences. And, you know, we were were predicting a slowdown in the industry just through natural cycles a couple of years ago, and, right. and we start to see that occur. And then you bring in these artificial stimulus causes, and and the market retracts much quicker than I think was initially intended. And, and so, I mean, this is outside ski resort properties, but certainly now in the lower mainland, we're seeing some price corrections, which mm-hmm. is not healthy whatsoever. Interesting. Now, back to the survey, and I'm looking at some of the findings from across the country. Here in BC, The I'm quoting, the amenities in greatest demand are beaches and skiing facilities. We've been talking a lot about skiing facilities. What do you mean by beaches? Are we talking about uh, uh, on a lake somewhere in the Okanagan or up there in the Caribou or over on Vancouver Island, or are we talking oceanfront? 
waterfront period, okay. whether that's salt water or fresh water. And we see that around the world and certainly here in British Columbia, which offers the greatest outdoor lifestyle, I believe, in North America, if not the world. And when you're talking uh, property on Vancouver Island or the Shushwap or, or up uh, in northern B.C. on Fraser Lake, uh, it continues to bring a premium price. And so an investment uh, for beyond the reasons of work-life balance and all of the good reasons, it turns out that uh, ultimately as, as a strict investment proposition, it has great potential. Uh, this is where the Airbnb and VRBO websites come in, and we've started to see that a couple of years ago. Because a lot of times these properties are, aren't used to their maximum potential. Sure. Uh, you'll go up there for a week or so, uh, the May long weekend, and try to grab you know, some, some time here and there. But you can get some return. And again, the ski resorts, the Sun Peaks, Whistler, Blackcomb, Silver Star, you know, when they become four season, it expands that potential for an owner. Interesting stuff. Where can uh, people listening to us right now uh, find this survey online and dive into the findings? Is it remax.ca? Is that a good place to start, Elton? Absolutely. Remax.ca in our media room uh, through the press release initiative section there. Okay. Uh, Good stuff. Uh, Great to have you back with us, and we appreciate the update on where we're headed. Always enjoy chatting, sir. Tonight, there's a debut of one of the newest expansion teams in the Overwatch League. They are the Vancouver Titans. And to tell us all about this, including what the heck is the Overwatch League, is Chris Golden. Chris is the host of Ready, Set, Pwn, which is a podcast all about, well, esports, among many other things, and, of course, the Overwatch League. Chris, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Sterling. It's great to have you with us. Uh, Before we find out more about the Titans and the connection to the Canucks, what on earth is the Overwatch League? Well, the Overwatch League is actually an eSports league that's based on a game produced by uh, Activision Blizzard called Overwatch. Okay. Uh, Simply put, it's what's called a first-person shooter. Uh, The view being you being in first person while you're playing, and for the simplest explanation, shooting other people. Right, but it's a team game, so how do you have first-person shooters with, like, six players? Well, it's a coordinated effort. Ultimately, different uh, characters within the game have different abilities, Uh and the intent behind the team is coordinating those abilities to be the team that comes out and be successful in the win. Chris, I guess for a lot of people who aren't into this, now James Murray, our producer this morning, is. He says, I'm a geek and that's all there is to it. And he started telling me about it. I'm going, wow, we we got a taste of this last summer with the big uh, tournament down at Rogers Arena with teams from all over the world and literally many millions of dollars on the table. How long has this thing been this big? Well, esports itself um, has been quite popular, but maybe not as popular as we might believe here in North America. Just to give some numbers, a report from Nuzu, uh, it's a provider of uh, esports analytics, has in 2019 alone the industry reaching $1.1 billion. Wow. Year over year is a 27% increase. And the Dota 2 international event that you referenced, I mean, Dota has a huge following on its own right. And it was able to go and put a lot of bums and seats at Rogers Arena, which is what I think 
may have attracted the attention of the Axelinis, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, shortly. Well, exactly. But, you know, we had, literally, you're quite right, Chris, we had 18,000 people in it. The place was sold out for the better part of a week. And But where does the money come from? All of those millions that the teams won, is the, the, I mean, ticket sales represent a certain part of the, of the prize pool, but is it sponsors? Is that where the big dough comes from? Yeah, nearly half of the money it comes from sponsorship alone. Like the gate uh, is a small portion. In fact, uh, the gate is probably the smallest short of uh, the actual publisher fees for the game itself. But sponsorship dollars, as I say, 50%, and it's still increasing. Uh, just with the Overwatch League alone, they're signing on you know, bigger sponsors. Um, just this year, we got Coca-Cola on board, Toyota's on board. Wow. And, you know, that's just Overwatch League, there is big money wanting to get into esports, being that its growth is is so significant. So now at the old Railway Club uh, downtown Vancouver tonight, uh, the uh, Vancouver Titans uh, is going to have their first event. Is this going to be a demonstration event or will it count for points in the actual league, Chris? Well, the uh, the event tonight is actually the first match that counts for points within okay. the league. So the Vancouver Titans are facing the uh, Shanghai Dragons. Uh, Shanghai was actually a team from last year, so many actually consider them an expansion team in their own right as they completely rebuilt the roster. They okay. also didn't win a game last year, so they're currently 0 for 41. So where would they, where they, will they be in Shanghai and the Vancouver team downtown of the Railway Club? Is that how it works? Well, the way it works with the Overwatch League right now is all of the matches uh, are played in a central location in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Sports typically has on-location events, even when there are disparate teams. Uh, this year, the Overwatch League is going to have what they call free homestand events. Those events will be in Dallas, Atlanta, and LA, where they leave that central location. And in 2020, the expectation is that the events uh, will be in different uh, home venues. So 2020 is when we might be able to watch the Vancouver Titans play here in Vancouver. Ah, okay. So now, the, the, as I recall, it's been a while since I've been in that venue, but it's not the largest in the world. There are probably two or 300 people max. So, uh, of course, it'll be a sellout, right? That's pretty much a given, given the response we had last summer to, to fill a venue of a couple hundred people is a given, isn't it? Well, the venue, so the, the railway club or the sports bar, these are actually where just viewing parties are taking place. So right. where fans are essentially going to watch because it's streamed uh, live. And uh, the Titans will, of course, be in Los Angeles. Angeles, right? Correct. Now, when they come here in 2020, well, there hasn't been any official announcement. Uh, my estimation is that seeing the success of the Dota 2 International event here in Vancouver, they will likely play in, in Rogers Arena. Now, will they play all their matches in Rogers Arena? That I, I don't know, but there are other venues that are, are coming up. There's one being built here in Richmond uh, that's going to be catering to, to esports events where you have uh, the ability to, to bring in an audience. Ah, so tonight it's an opportunity for Vancouver Overwatch League fans to congregate at a central point, in this case the old Railway Club, uh, and mm-hmm. watch their team live from Los Angeles taking on the team from Shanghai. That's correct. And if the event that, uh, watch party that occurred yesterday in Toronto is any indication, uh, it'll be a happening place. So the event in Toronto was actually held at the uh, Real Sports Bar. So again, a mainstream sports bar showcasing on all of their televisions, esports, and being able to pack the place was very rabid fan. So the Titans are one of eight new expansion teams in the Overwatch League, one of two Canadian teams. Obviously, the other one is in Toronto. Mm-hmm, that's correct. And what are they called? 
So the Toronto team is called the Toronto Defiant. Okay. The, t- the, the Titans and the Defiant. Now back to the Titans. When did the Aquilinis uh, sort of tweak on the fact that maybe this asset would be a good acquisition? Were they just floored by the turnout last summer at their arena? I, I think the turnout within their, their bar definitely got interest uh, sort of stoked. If we uh, listen to the conversation that they had uh, when the, uh, the announcement of the expansion franchise took place, they they had actually said that when they were watching, you know, their younger kids, and nieces and nephews, playing uh, a game called Fortnite, which has in its own right has a huge following. True, yep, they I saw, know about that one. They saw potential. And I think the ability to get into the Overwatch League in its second year, having seen the success of the first, made a lot of sense. Um, as far as the Aquilini's investing in the Vancouver Titans, one of the things that uh, uh, is believed to have also occurred is that it's not just sort of the Vancouver area. I mean, they are promoting the Pacific Northwest. The Titans came in and acquired a large region. I'll be very honest. I'm a biased Vancouver sports fan. I okay. follow the, the Canadians, the Canucks, the uh, Lions, the Whitecaps. I would have never thought that Vancouver was in the mix for an Overwatch League franchise. If you were to have asked me last year, I would have told you it would have been Seattle. Right. Oh, uh, okay. So for the Aquilinis to come in, get this franchise, um, they obviously needed to hit the ground running. And whether it was the Dota 2 International event or simply watching their you know, young uh, relatives play Fortnite, um, Whatever it was, smart investment on their part. So is uh, is Seattle likely at some point or another? First, they got to get an NHL team. Let's get the priorities right here, Chris. But <laughs> after all, but eventually, can you see a, a, a city like Seattle uh, getting into the Overwatch League as uh, up the road in Vancouver has already happened? Possibly. I mean, Seattle itself has a, probably a better established uh, esports scene. There are, are more facilities catering towards esports. Uh, there are more people sort of involved. Uh, not to suggest that there aren't people here in Vancouver. It's just you know a different demographic and ultimately you know different structure of a of a community. That said, the rumor is is that uh, the Aquilini's acquired a large region. Aha! So should Seattle become interested in a franchise? that would require the Aquilinis to potentially give up a piece of the pie. Um, I would be a big fan of having a team in Seattle just for the regional rivalry. Oh, sure. I'm just like everyone else. I can't wait for the Seattle NHL team to to spin up because it'll be great driving down the I-5 to go cheer for the Canucks as opposed to the current place i got to go to Calgary, Edmonton, down to L.A. is not not an easy commute. That's very true. So it will, will be interesting to see what, what occurs either next year or year before. Absolutely. So this is really the debut year for the Titans. But in terms of us being able to buy tickets and go to see one of their games, we're at least one full season away from that. That's correct. And okay. even then, it's, it's just more subjective that there will be matches here in Vancouver. Uh, a lot of things need to to come into play. Um, what to other you know most people don't realize is that the teams themselves have the best players on, on them, and so the Vancouver team is is actually a, a team of Koreans, and uh, you know, obviously, when we start thinking about uh, uh, international uh, requirements, there's visa issues and and whatnot. So I'm not you know trying to throw any uh, water onto the fire, but I think we'll be. Uh, We'll be pretty excited when they make that announcement, hopefully sometime this evening. Interesting stuff. Well, you're obviously going to go down to the thing tonight. Chris, enjoy yourself. Thank you for this this morning and love the opportunity to do it again. And we can all learn a little bit more from you. Sounds good. Thanks for the uh, 
opportunity as well, Erskine.